Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I am also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and work for the healthcare revenue cycle for Medarev. I have with me my co-host, Dr. Robert Pearl. Robert is the former CEO of the Permanente Group, the largest physician group in the United States, responsible for caring for Kaiser Permanente members on both the East and West Coast. He is a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast aimed at addressing the failures of the current American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. We are very excited you have chosen to join us in this quest. For 40 years, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system. No one has succeeded yet. We need a hero. Our guests are the top leaders and thinkers in healthcare. The show's format is simple. Our guests will have 10 minutes to present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And I will probe deeply based on my experience as a physician and healthcare CEO. I'll scrutinize the plan, posing questions that challenge our guests and helping our listeners separate real solutions from hype. Then Jeremy will dive in from the patient's perspective, ensuring their concerns are addressed making certain the concepts are clear for listeners and helping to translate any medical jargon we may have into normal conversational language. Unlike many other healthcare shows, we are not interested in hearing about a pilot project that worked in one location or a new device that a company simply wants to promote. We are searching for truly disruptive change, not just a few minor tweaks. Our guest today is Dr. David Feinberg. He is president and CEO of Geisinger one of the nation's largest health services organizations, known for innovation and excellent medical care. Dr. Feinberg earned his undergraduate degree at the University of California, Berkeley, and graduated with distinction from the University of Health Sciences, Chicago Medical School. He earned a Master of Business Administration from Pepperdine University. Prior to joining Geisinger, Dr. Feinberg served as a CEO of UCLA's Hospitals and Associate Vice Chancellor of UCLA Health Sciences, as well as President of UCLA Health System. With a focus on caring for patients and members, Dr. Feinberg caught the industry's attention by launching Springboard Health, a population health initiative to improve the health of an entire community, Geisinger's proven experience to provide refunds to patients unhappy with their care experience, and Geisinger's MyCode Community Health Initiative, the largest healthcare system-based precision health project in the world that is returning medically actionable results to participants while conducting extensive research. To date, To date, nearly 200,000 volunteer participants have enrolled. He also wrote the book, Proven Care, How to Deliver Value-Based Healthcare the Geisinger Way. Dr. Feinberg is nationally recognized as one of the top minds and leaders in healthcare. David, please consider yourself an applicant for the job of leader of American healthcare. You're being hired due to your experience and reputation as a visionary leader and innovator. After decades of talking about the unaffordability of healthcare coverage and nearly 20 years of lamenting lagging quality and over 100,000 deaths nationally each year from the breathable medical era, our country is ready to make a major change. They told the audience, we're not interested in small incremental fixes or simply trade-offs amongst cost, quality, and service. But instead, we believe that disruption is possible. And Dr. Feinberg, you are the right person to make it happen. The deliverables are significant in size and scope, but unless we can achieve this level of improvement, we don't believe over the next five to 10 years, the American people will be willing to move forward. We'd like to provide a plan. Have you tell us how to achieve the following. One, increase life expectancy in the U.S. from last amongst the 11 most industrialized nations to at least the middle of the pack. Two, Increase quality outcomes as publicly reported by organizations like the National Quality Assurance Committee, the NCQA, by at least 20%. Decrease the cost of care by 20% on federally reported data. Improve service and convenience for patients by 20% on satisfaction surveys. And improve professional satisfaction for clinicians by 20% on physician surveys. 
You'll have 10 minutes or so to outline the system of healthcare you believe is capable of achieving all of these outcomes and the steps you will take in this role to get there. David, we can't wait to hear your plan. Well, Jeremy and Robert, what a privilege for me to be here discussing this with you. But let me start out by saying I think your question is actually really easy. And fixing healthcare in America is the simplest thing we can do. The problem is we've been looking at the wrong problem. So when we talk about healthcare, and if I even go over your five questions about how are you going to improve life expectancy, what are you going to do to improve quality, what are you going to improve service, that's fixing a system that's broken. And really what we need to do is say, well, what does drive health and what does drive mortality? And you know, we probably get 20% of whether we live or die, whether we have life in our years and years in our life based on going to good doctors and good hospitals. And I will address that. But where we're going to put all of our efforts in my plan or the majority of my efforts is on all the other stuff. You know, the stuff that really matters, your genetic code, your zip code, your social environment, your access to clean food, your access to transportation, how much loneliness you have or don't have. When we talk about American healthcare, all we talk about is make that pill less money. You know, seven out of 10 Americans are on a prescription medication. So we can beat up the pharmaceutical companies and say, God, they're charging too much for medications. Or we can say, why are seven out of 10 Americans on medications? And can we get Americans off medications? We talk about opiates killing people. You know, we make up 5% of the world's population and we consume 50% of the illegal drugs. So those are expensive habits. So my plan, you know, Robert and Jeremy, I'm 56 years old. When I was born, the chances of me developing type 2 diabetes was 1 in 100. If I were born today, the chances of me developing type 2 diabetes is 1 in 3. So that's not a genetic change. Something happened in our food that people born today have a 33 times higher chance of getting diabetes. In America, we spend more on obesity than we spend on defense. Somewhere between 3 and 7% of GDP is spent on obesity, and that's a new problem. So if we're going to fix American healthcare, we got to put aside American healthcare for a second and figure out how come people aren't exercising, having access to food, not shooting each other, not wearing their seatbelts, using alcohol in moderation, and not using substances. So my plan would affect all of those things. Now, we know for sure that if we look at your genome now, which we can do for a few hundred dollars, used to cost about 10 million, we can find medically actionable conditions that we can prevent in advance. We can find half the people that wouldn't know they had BRCA uh, based on their family history and intervene early. We can literally save lives based on your genetics. And that's probably about 10 or 20% of my plan. The rest of my plan is around transportation, food, housing, loneliness, and behaviors. And all of these behaviors that we need to change are actually simple when you think about it. We didn't have these levels of obesity 50 years ago. So what happened kind of in that half of a century that got us in this bad direction? So my plan, and I think it's actually pretty straightforward, is if you think about healthcare in America, it costs us on average about $10,000 per person. And in that $10,000 per person, I would say, and you have said in your introduction, that our outcomes aren't that good. So we're not even getting a good bang for our buck. So what if instead we said to people, and most people who are working pay about 3,000 of that 10,000 themselves through co-pays, co-insurance, premiums. The other 7,000 is paid for by their employer. That's what makes up the 10,000. But let's just take, for example, three employees. Employee number one has a normal BMI. They exercise. They do all of their preventive screening. They're healthy. They're on no meds. They use alcohol in moderation. They wear their seatbelt. They do all the right stuff. Employee number two is a little overweight, has a little hypertension, occasionally misses a preventive screen like a colonoscopy or a mammography, um, and you know has high cholesterol and, and has a, a few too, too sedentary. And employee number three um, is a train wreck. 
you know, a lot of lifestyle disorders have caught up with this person. They have uh, lung disease, heart disease, they're morbidly obese, they don't exercise, they don't take good care of themselves, they don't even manage the diseases that they have well. We call them, and I think this is not the right term, but we call them in healthcare a non-compliant patient. Let's take those three people aside. Let's bring them in a room, in a conference room, and that number of three, I don't care if it's three buildings of people, 3,000 people, three people, three people in a family, but let's give them this option. Let's say to those three people, we got a deal for you next year. You three, employee number one, if you stay healthy and you can get employee number two to be as healthy as you are, meaning take that mildly non-healthy person and make them healthy. And employee number three, you have to become as, as healthy as number two. You don't have to get all the way there. You just have to get, you know, start doing some of your regular screening, manage your conditions and, you know, lose a little weight. If the three of you can achieve this, because I think we got unhealthy as a group, but if the three people together can achieve this, we got something for you next year. And they say, well, what is that? And I said, well, we're going to give you free health care. There'll be no premium. There'll be no copay. There'll be no co-insurance. Your medications will be free, absolutely free. And we've done this. And when we do this, everybody looks at you and goes, wow, that's fantastic. I'll take that. And then I say, you're actually going to get something better than that. Not only are you going to get free health care, you know, you're going to get your health. You're going to get more years with your grandkid. You're going to be more active. Your sex life's going to get better. You're going to sleep better. Everything's going to get better. Actually, the gift is better than free health care. So how do we pay for that? Well, if you think about it, that employee, remember, each one on average costs us about $10,000. So that's $30,000 in health care, some from an employer, some from the individual to care for those three people. But number one, if we look at their claims data, only cost us 5000 Number two only cost us 10000 Number three cost us fifteen, And you add the five, the 10, the 15, and there's your 30. But remember, next year, two of them have become a number one, and the number three person dropped down to a number two, right? We, we went from healthy, moderately ill, severely ill, to healthy, healthily, and moderately ill. So that's 5000 5000 and 10000 We just cut $30,000, I'm 10,000 of the $30,000 in health care costs away. And that was the part those folks were paying themselves. That was the three or 4,000 out of the 10 that each was paying. So we can now say it's free. Now their employers still pay the six grand, but these people now um, have free health care, at least from their own pocket. And what does the employer think? This is incredible. I got better presenteeism. People are coming to work. They're missing less work because they're ill. And if one of those people goes, looks for a job down the block at a competitor and everyone's paying market-based wages, that employee goes to look for a new job. Yes, you pay me the same to do the same type of job. And that employee says, well, how much, what's the healthcare benefit here? And that other employer says, well, the healthcare benefit here is, you know, there's a $2,000 premium and you pay $30 for certain meds and $10 for this meds. And there's a cat, you know, regular healthcare. And that employee goes, wow, I'm going to stay at my job because they pay the same, but I get free. And I say free in quotes because it's just free from the employee's eyes, free healthcare. So you got much better retention. Now, all of a sudden, we got a healthier workforce and we've literally cut the cost of healthcare by 30%. And nobody yet has gone to the hospital. And just doing those things, eating right, normal BMI, not smoking, uh, alcohol in moderation, not shooting one another, um, those getting preventive screenings, we know will decrease healthcare costs overall by 50% in the United States. 50% of the disorders we're paying for are lifestyle disorders. And that little group of three people took care of themselves and got themselves healthier. We know how to nudge people. We know social and behavioral cues that make people healthier. That group of three is going to say, hey, we're a team. Let's go on a walk. We're a team. Hey, let's not get dessert every time we go out. What's your weight? I'm wearing an Apple watch. Did you close your circles? That's how people change behaviors. So we've now cut healthcare costs in half. We have employers happy. Uh, for the first time, healthcare costs aren't going up for employers. And I don't even yet have to worry about getting to let's get less errors in the hospitalization. We just decreased hospitalizations 
by 50%. So by definition, there's going to be less errors because there's less people going through the hospital. And then I'm happy to talk more about how can we actually improve quality and measures like that. But to me, we keep talking about that and we're missing this big picture of understanding people's genetic code, their zip code, their microenvironment, and really what drives behavior. And that's what's costing us so much in American healthcare. So maybe, David, you and I can start by just talking about your, this part of the plan, and then we can double back to the other questions of how do you take care of the 30% of costs that sit within the healthcare system itself. Sure. And let me start with the following question, which is about the transition period. What we know is that it takes probably five years for these types of lifestyle changes to actually present themselves in terms of reduced hospital or medical costs, lower blood lipid, control blood pressure. You don't see it the next year. You see it over, I'll say, five years, somewhere between three and 10, depending upon the specific condition. How do you think about funding this during the transition period? So I'm going to push back on that. So so and I, I know we're not supposed to just focus on what we're doing, but let me give you an example of where we've seen that change happen in three months and not in five years. So we screened all our type two diabetics. We care for about 3 million patients, all type two diabetics and, and not type one diabetes, which is a genetic disorder, but type two diabetes, which by and large is a lifestyle disorder, uh, very closely associated with obesity. And we screened them all to see who of in that group is food insecure. Food insecure means they said yes to one of two questions. I'm gonna run out of food this month or I'm worried I don't have money for food. You say yes to one of those, you have type 2 diabetes that's out of control, meaning your long-term blood sugar, which should be, you know, that measure should be a low six and a half, seven percent or less, is 10, 11, 12, 13. And we say to those folks, come on in, we want to give you some diabetic education, and here's healthy food for you and your family. And if you're living in a hotel or a motel and you need a hot plate or a microwave, we got you covered. And you come in every week. And you'll always get seven fresh fruits and seven fresh vegetables to choose from, lean meats, whole grains, just good stuff, oatmeal and quinoa and carrots, um, skinless meats. And what we've seen in that group is those folks were costing us, and these weren't people that were not getting medical care. They were getting medical care from us. These were our patients. They were seeing our doctors, our nurses, our care managers. These weren't people off the street. These were people that were already accessing care. We saw hemoglobin A1Cs in three months drop literally from 13 to seven. We saw everyone's blood sugar get better and their cost went from about $200,000 per patient per year. Within three months, their medical costs were running around $40,000 a year. $160,000 savings that we were able to start seeing uh, take effect at month three. So now that your number of five years really is talking about a general population that's having medical issues or lifestyle issues and to start to see those changes. But there's plenty of people, and we know it, that that small 5% that are driving so much of the cost of healthcare, if we can get those folks healthy, I believe that we can see those kinds of financial results in months and not in years. And the other thing about that that I think is absolutely crucial that we don't talk enough about is type 2 diabetes, which is just going to, I mean, we were talking about one in three people born today is going to have type 2 diabetes. This is the biggest thing affecting us, is associated with poverty. Because if you're poor, if you're really poor, you eat rice and beans. As you become a little less poor, you start eating high caloric, non-nutritious food, right? You're eating fast food that gets you into the type 2 diabetes. And then when you get type 2 diabetes, you actually become more poor because you miss 17 days of work uh, on, on average per year. So it's this vicious cycle when you don't have access to food that you end up getting sick and poorer. And because you're poorer, you get sicker. When you break the cycle with food, not only have we seen these dramatic results in decreasing, in improving their medical care, but in decreasing their healthcare costs, guess what? The poverty gets better. I just met with one of our patients 
He's a commercial driver, trucker, couldn't get his commercial driver's license renewed because his blood sugars are already in the 300s. In our fresh fruit pharmacy program, blood sugars get better. He's back driving. We got so many of those stories as we start treating the patient's medical issue that's really driven because of poverty. Not only does the medical issue gets better, but as the medical issue gets better, the poverty gets better. And that helps the economy overall. So we think you can make these interventions in months or a year and that you don't need to wait five years to see it. But even if you had to wait five years to see it, it still makes sense, particularly for populations that are stable, to make those kinds of investments because you're going to eventually get the payoff. And if not, someone's going to pay the piper. So that's why, we, that's why we're all in. And in my plan, it would be all in that we really once and for all solve the problem of people not having access to healthy food, solve the problem around transportation, solve the problem around homelessness and housing. And we would see a dramatic decrease, not only in healthcare costs, but we would see an improvement in poverty, which would drive our economy. How realistic do you think it is on a national scale, uh, especially in areas that are traditionally food deserts, uh, do you think it is to make healthy food as affordable and convenient as fast food while providing education to the population about how to eat healthy? We've done it. Uh, I think it's uh, pretty straightforward. I think it's actually pretty easy. You know, there's so much food waste in America. We have great, great food banks. The food banks don't always provide healthy food. Um, they would say they're closing the hunger gap, not the nutrition gap. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, so there's, it's not like it happens overnight. Um, but next year, we will serve 1.5 million meals to our patients that have type 2 diabetes that are food insecure. This program started within the last couple of years. Uh, and I think that 1.5 million number will continue to grow. Certainly, a lot of people have pointed out the social determinants of health. As you start to list them with housing, with jobs, with transportation, we're talking about an industry that's at least as large as the entire American healthcare system. Where do you see the partnerships? And more importantly, how would you shift the politics? So for us, and now we're an integrated delivery system, so we not only we care for patients, we insure the patients. What we've said, and, and somebody is paying for every patient somewhere. So there's always somebody that this would make sense for. So to me, the politics or the policy is you get to the person that's responsible for that payment. Because if they're uninsured, everybody else in the community is paying for them. If they're commercially insured, the employer's paying. If they're governmentally insured, the government's paying. And in our case, if they're insured by their own health system, we're paying. So what we've said is, wow, we think loneliness is probably as big of a risk factor for heart disease as actual coronary artery disease. So if you live within 50 miles of where I am today in Danville, Pennsylvania, where we have a lot of hospitals and clinics, or 25 miles where we have a lot of uh, hospitals up in clinics in Northeastern Scranton area, if you live within those areas and you need a ride to the doctor, to church, to your friend, to the supermarket, Give us a call. We got you covered. No charge. We will get you to wherever you need to go because we wanted to eliminate transportation issues as a driver of increased healthcare costs. And you said you don't want to hear about pilots. So we, we agree. We don't think it's a pilot. We're doing it across our entire system. I just think those types of interventions are so much more valuable in driving down healthcare costs and making people's lives better that somebody needs to be doing that everywhere. And take me to any town in America, and I can tell you, and it's usually pretty much the same, that about a third to a half of the people are getting their healthcare paid for by the government. The government should be providing those folks transportation, the ones that don't have it. The other half of the people that are, have commercial insurance, meaning their employers paying, should say, for my low-wage workers who don't have transportation, I need to provide transportation, or it's going to drive up my healthcare costs, that actually getting someone to the doctor is a lot cheaper than having the ambulance come two days later when they're really ill and putting them in the hospital. So these are just, to me, very, very common sense. I think they make sense across both 
parts of the aisle because yes, you could say it's an entitlement, but in the other on the other side of the aisle, it's a great driver of the economy and it's a great business initiative to decrease healthcare costs by providing really some of these basic services. What are your thoughts on the whole body positive movement that's going on now where people are embracing and even sometimes being proud of unhealthy and overweight lifestyles? I, I mean, I'm a guy who says you can do whatever you want. I'm not a person that says um, uh, you have to do this. Uh, we all make our own choices, but those are expensive. And if we're pooled in insurance, um, I get a discount on my driving insurance because I don't get speeding tickets. Um, but if you and I have the same insurance and you don't want to take good care of your body, why do I have to pay for your insurance? Why do I have to subsidize your lifestyle choices? So where I think it's, hey, every man for themselves, and if you want to be overweight, that's no problem. I got no problem. Go for it. But don't make me pay for it. And if and you and and so I, I don't think we should shame anyone for their choices. But choices have consequences, except in healthcare. Because in healthcare, you get covered at work and it doesn't matter. I mean, the only places we see it a little bit is some health, uh, some places like us won't hire you if you're a smoker. But that, I mean, come on, in everywhere else, you got to cover yourself. And here we say, no, you can totally disrespect your body and then you demand to be seen right away. And it's like, whoa, 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 that's hard. Now, I think there's some particular issues around obesity that are associated with some genetic disorder. So I'm sort of exaggerating because I think some people do get a hall pass. But by and large, we're talking about lifestyle choices that are expensive. But hey, if you want to be a skydiver, you certainly can. But I shouldn't have to pay for the risk associated with that. So I got no problem with uh, folks that want to embrace their body however their body is but it comes with costs some people like to do this and some like to do that i just don't want to be burdened with that cost when i was the ceo in kaiser permanente i was able to lead the process of lowering hospitalization in this case we looked at medicare patients nationally it's about 1400 as you know patient days per thousand medicare members we drove it to 700 under 700 less than half and when I went and told people about this, expecting to get a positive reaction, they had the opposite. The hospitals were saying, we couldn't stay in business if all of a sudden half of the patients didn't need our services. Your plan will have the same impact. How are you going to address the current American healthcare system? Well, well, I run a health system and we have about 13 or so hospitals. And I think my job is to close every one of them. And I would congratulate you on what you did. But I think there's even more work to be done and you could have lowered your hospitalization rate even further. So a couple things I think we need to do. I think a lot of those patients, even the ones that you managed well, but ended up in the hospital could be managed better at home. So we look at our highest utilizers, our sickest patients. We show up at their house in two cars because we can't all fit in one car. And we got a nurse, a palliative care nurse, a community health worker, a pharmacist, a doc. Um, and we say, hi, sir or ma'am, we're here to take care of you. And our goal is you never go in the hospital again. And we know you've been hospitalized 12 times in the last year. You know, let's clean out the medicine cabinet. Let's make sure the house is safe. Oh, you have a bunch of appointments that are hard for you to get. We'll do them through telemedicine right now at the kitchen table. Just completely eliminate the need for those folks to ever go in the hospital again. Those are the ones that are driving a lot of the hospitalization. So I think even when you decrease utilization and we say less got in, I think we can even do better. Now, I do believe that ultimately still people may get hit by cars or we may be doing types of procedures that can't be done in people's homes, but that really should become an exception. Or you could think of it as a failure. And, and worse yet is they had to come to a doctor why do people have to come to a doctor now? I don't go to the bookstore anymore. I don't go to my travel agent anymore. I, do, I, I can actually do so much through my phone. Why can't I tell you here are what my symptoms are? And can you hook me up with someone who can help me? And if I do need medicines, why don't you just drone them to my house? So those types of interventions, I think, are coming. And those disruptions are absolutely crucial. And then we get to your question, Robbie. Well, we got these big hospitals and we got 6,000 employees here and we're the big employer in town. 
It's insane. We need to repurpose those people out in the community to keep people healthy and out of their hospitals. And then we have to actually figure out what to do with the bricks and mortars. And I would say those of us in this business that think we need to hang on to those bricks and mortars, we're going to start looking like blockbuster video and Netflix is coming. So I think the bricks and mortars are an asset that we need to get rid of as quickly as possible because we take care of people in a, in a way that they're used to in every other part of their life now. So everything you can get at home, everything you can get online, except good healthcare. And so we're driving all the care to home. And we think if you went into our outpatient clinic, that's a failure of our home care. And if you went into our inpatient, that's a failure of our outpatient because we could do a lot of it in buildings that we kept 24 hours open that don't need to have the same kind of acuity as a hospital. So to us, it's all a move toward home. It's all a move toward making communities healthy. And it's all, and this time, because people have given this story before, I think there's two fundamental differences. One is we literally can't afford it anymore, right? So whether we're at 18% of GDP or tomorrow will be at 20%, it's unaffordable. It is really unaffordable, especially as businesses are pushing this onto employees to pay more of it. And second, and this is an advantage we finally got, technology is catching up. And we can use that technology as a platform to say, no, you don't have to come in and fill out a clipboard. Actually, we know so much about you. We can anticipate, and that's what I would say we're doing with your, our genetics, we can anticipate your needs and what's going to happen before it happens so we can get into not precision medicine, but anticipatory medicine. We look at every one of our patients in our 3 million person catchment area, and we know based on how close they live to the forest the odds of them getting Lyme's disease. We know how close they live to concentrated livestock, the chances of them getting MRSA, an antibiotic-resistant um, organism, because it's used often in livestock and gets into the groundwater. We know how close they live to Marcellus shale. That's what we have up here in Pennsylvania, the chances of them getting respiratory illness. We know their genetics. Now take that big data, do AI, do machine learning on it, and we can tell this person before something happens, here's your risk of Lyme's disease. You're actually pretty high. If you have this symptom based on where you live, there's a great chance that this is what you got. Or you don't have a chance at that because no one in your zip code has got it and we know where you travel, et cetera, et cetera. So you start thinking, wow, we can start thinking in advance what's wrong with people or what could become wrong with them and prevent it. Wow, that just prevents an entire illness. One of your 700,000, 700 folks that did get admitted, we just prevented that admission. That is what we need to do in healthcare. And I don't think it's time for pilots anymore. I think we have enough evidence to say this is the only way that healthcare should be paid for. And this is the only thing that we should be measured on. We should tell docs, you're a primary care doc, you have 2,000 patients. You're going to get a bonus next year if the average BMI in your practice decreases. That simple. Those kinds of tools will change how we pay for healthcare and how people engage in their healthcare and what our professionals do to make people's lives better. You and I both agree on the power of technology. You know, when I was leading Kaiser Permanente, we would offer ED physicians doing video at night and on weekends, 60% of the patients who otherwise would have gone to the ED had their problem solved immediately without an ED visit. The same for dermatology. 70% of the rashes were diagnosed not in six weeks or six months as dermatology often is delayed in the United States, but six minutes. So that opportunity you and I completely agree on, but we have a big advantage. We both led and lead integrated comprehensive organizations. The question I'm going to pose to you is most of the nation is not in that way. You and I could probably agree that if we did what you're talking about, we're going to need far fewer specialists. How is that transition going to happen, in your view, for American medicine? So to me, we can't afford to wait and people's cheese is going to get moved and there will be lobbying groups and special interest groups that will scream. And if we want to continue, if we don't want to bite the bullet, we will continue to have a very, very expensive healthcare system that is completely failing. We have an in, we, for the first time in my life, life expectancy has gone down. 
We got infant mortality rates that are the same as some African countries that are completely third world. We have immunization rates in Santa Monica that are some of the lowest in the world. This is insanity that we're not looking at the population-based. We're not looking at those easy types of interventions that are going to save lives. So the question is, how do we get there fast? I think from a policy standpoint, all payment should be linked to these types of things, as opposed to if you, if you can stick a tube in somebody or do some high-tech thing, you're going to make a lot of money. As soon as we switch the payment to say it's all based on value, it's all based on keeping people healthy, it's all based on keeping people out of the hospital, everybody will get in line. But we've tiptoed around it. If we continue to tiptoe around it or we continue to have a bifurcated system where some of us think this way and some of us don't think that way, we will never get there. But you know who could really pull this more than anyone are our patients. I mean, when you think about it, if this industry was required, if every patient said, I won't go to you unless you can provide me online 24-hour access to a doctor, I won't go to you unless you can uh, provide care in my home, the industry would change. But what we've been for so long is provider-centered. We've been centered around hospitals and doctors, waiting rooms. Nobody ever in their life has gotten better in a waiting room. So all of our new clinics we're building have no waiting rooms because patients should not wait when they're sick. Our goal in our emergency room is not to get you seen within 30 minutes. It's to get you to seen within zero minutes because if it's truly an emergency, you should be seen right away. And now let's put all the things in place to make sure no one comes to the emergency room unless it is an emergency. So those kinds of things I think Americans need to do, and I think we have an opportunity. And the opportunity is for the first time, Americans are starting to have to pay for some of this. Now, they always have been paying for it because their employer paid, and so they weren't getting the wage increase that they used should have been getting because healthcare costs were eating it up. But now as the employers have said, we're done with that and pushing more and more of the cost on to the employee, hey, guess what? It's now a retail business. And once it goes retail, you can't make people wait. Once it goes retail, you can't serve bad food. So we've said, hey, it's retail. If you don't like the care at Geisinger, we didn't answer the phone right. We didn't treat you with compassion. Uh, you didn't like the doctor. You didn't like the outcome. You didn't like your bill. Whatever it is, we'll give you all your money back. No questions asked. So we, we actually then give a little modifier. We do have two questions. We need your name and address to send you the money. But there's no questions asked about why you're asking for your money back. That retail thing, people go, oh my God, that's so innovative in healthcare. What are you talking about? Have you ever gone to Starbucks, ordered the latte? I said, wait, I asked for almond milk and a sweet and low. You didn't make it right. Have you ever seen the barista take a sip of the latte and say, no, that's how it is. You got to drink it. We would never stand for that. But that's how we treat people in healthcare. Hey, I'm really sorry you came in. We don't have a bed. I'm sorry. You have to stay here in the hallway. That's what we do in healthcare completely, completely unacceptable in a retail environment. So as this moves to retail, it's going to require the health systems to either adapt or they're going to go away. And those that can connect with people in a humane, compassionate way where they understand what's going on, where things are explained to them, where they're treated with dignity and cultural respect are going to win. So I think the move toward making people pay more for their health care instead of this amorphous insurer is going to help transition us much faster. One of the things that interested me were patients who, based upon the disease level, the risk level, spent a lot more money in any given year. And we studied this population in great detail, and we found three factors, poverty, mental health issues, and pain. What's your approach to mental health issues in the general community and specifically for individuals and families? So I'm a, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist and an adult psychiatrist and an addiction psychiatrist. So this has been my career. And the worst thing that ever happened, and it happened during my career, was this idea that mental health should be carved out from an insurance standpoint from physical health. And the reason it happened, if we go back to the 90s with managed care, um, you know, doctors were made, primary care doctors were made a gatekeeper. And they said to the primary care doctor, you're in charge of all specialists and how many visits they get. Well, actually, primary care doctors were pretty good at managing specialists. They had trouble knowing how many visits they should give to a dermatologist, and they could never figure out how many visits to give to a psychiatrist. 
So a psychiatrist could call and say, I'm seeing your patient. I need to see him three times a week forever. And the primary care doctor would say, why? Well, they're suicidal. Well, what's the primary care doctor going to say? No, you can only see him four times. They don't know how to manage that. So this industry got developed called mental health carve out, carve out the insurance. So think of this. If you go, you take your kid to the pediatrician and the kid is tugging at their ear and the pediatrician looks in their ear and goes, ah, it looks red. I think it's an infection. And the mom says, and he's coughing. Does he have a strep throat? You know, my other child has strep throat. Pediatrician says, I can't look in his throat. That's done by a different organization. There's a different number on your insurance card. They're down the block. Call them. It's a different copay. We've carved out throats from ears. It's as crazy as carving out mental health from health. But that's the system. You know, three visits to a primary care office. If you just take a practice and you say to the person at the front desk, can you name every patient who comes in three times or more a year? to see primary care, not, not what they come in for, just that they come in. If you come in three times or more to a primary care office, you have over a 50% chance that you have diagnosable mental disorder. Mental disorder is coming to primary care, especially the frequent flyers. They're either coming because their depression is masquerading as head pain, or they actually have a bona fide medical condition like heart disease or stroke, which has a huge comorbidity or runs quite often with depression and anxiety. And those patients aren't getting appropriately addressed where they're coming. They're being sent to some other building down the block that's run by a different company with a different 800 number. Insanity. And those two systems don't talk to each other. So what we've done is actually make that pain point go away. And in all of our offices, we have about 200 plus offices throughout Pennsylvania and New Jersey in our clinics, we embed behavioral health experts. So you go in to see your regular primary care doc and the doc says, wow, I think this could be depression. Instead of sending you on your way and telling you to go see a psychologist, they say, walk down the hall with me. And they literally are handed off, warm handoff to one of our mental health people who does evidence-based treatment for depression, anxiety, ADHD, memory loss, et cetera. Same building, same team. Now, behind the scenes, for our patients, it's easy. They're insured by us. But we see others that are insured by other payers. If they have a separate 800 number and are supposed to call somebody else, we make that happen magically behind the scenes because we think not putting it, not reintegrating mental health services back into medical services is as crazy as treating ears and throats in different buildings. You know, when there's a shooting in America, a mass shooting, uh, I would say that most of the time it's a white male in their 20s. And they ask, well, what's wrong with this person? And the way they find out what's wrong, they ask a neighbor or a classmate. And the neighbors or the classmates say, well, they were kind of kept to their own or they kind of were seemed angry or the mom says something. That's how we get the information. What I think we need to do with the next shooting, and I hope that it doesn't happen, is we need to ask who was that person's primary care or medical home because they missed it. So think about it. I got 2,000 patients. I'm a primary care doc. I need somebody right next to me who understands mental health. I need somebody next to me who understands home-based care. And in the morning, when I come in Monday morning, of my 2,000 patients, we should say, who do we need to make a home visit? Who's coming in today and what do we need to do to prepare for that visit? And you know what? We got two or three of these kids who seem to have signs that they're falling out of the community. Let's find out why that kid dropped out of junior high school. Let, uh, junior high, junior college. Let's get that kid back in and engaged. Let's prevent that kid from being only explained by a neighbor because that kid belongs to our medical home. That kid belongs to my practice. That to me is reintegrating mental health back into health and to separate it. Uh, and I get why it happened is to me a complete travesty, both as a professional that spent my life taking care of these folks, um, but again, from a cost-saving standpoint, we know that untreated people with anxiety end up with a lot of cardiac workups. It's a complete waste of time. It's a waste of money. We gotta treat mental health, and it's happening in primary care. It's happening in our communities. We gotta be in the homes taking care of it. And it's another place where technology is a huge 
um, accelerant. Actually, people will be more honest about suicidality to a computer than to a psychiatrist. Great. Let's start using that to figure out who needs help and how we can intervene. How do you plan to address the stigma around mental health issues like depression and the people suffering from them? Well, I think stigma around mental health is something that I've thought quite a bit about. And I think it's sometimes works against us. And what what I mean is that, you know, the mental health record in our electronic health records is is oftentimes sealed off so the rest of the healthcare team doesn't see it because it's so private. Well, that's not good care. Um, and that I can't even provide you good medical care unless I know what's going on from a mental health standpoint. I think, and I do think our new generation uh, would agree with me, that this idea around privacy that we have um, is kind of gone away. Everyone knows everything uh, about us, whether we know it or not. And the more we're open about mental health issues and or physical health issues, the better chance that it disappears and you're looked at like somebody did something wrong. You know, uh, I, I used to say, if, if a child is in the supermarket and they're bald because they have cancer, um, people see that family come up to them and give them hugs and bring food to their house. That same aisle the mom's walking, but the kid's not bald, but the kid has autism or some disruptive behavior disorder. And families go to a different aisle. I mean, they don't even come and hug you and they certainly don't bring food to your house. Just think about that. We have to make that autism the same kind of emotional community response you get then when, God forbid, your kid has cancer so that you get that support. And I think the way to get there is to hit the stigma straight on. First of all, I've never met a family that doesn't have mental illness in their family, ever. So we need to come forward and say, hey, that's it. we may not have this, but we got this. And it's in every single family in America. The numbers are just astounding. I mean, when you look at it, it's, I believe, and my data could be a little off, but I believe six of the top 10 medications prescribed in America, or three of the top 10, are SSRIs, the Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, and the new ones. So it's it's there. We absolutely have to bring it into the fold and out of the darkness. Our major contributor to the reason that more Americans are dying or were dying earlier because the age of uh, death is, is becoming earlier in time as opposed to almost every other country is around the issue of opioid addiction. We know that over 50,000 people die every year as a consequence. Uh, what we know is that quite a number of people are on huge doses of opioids, many of which were started by physicians, and we could spend a lot of time looking backwards, but I want to look forwards. What kind of strategy would you want to implement in this new system in order to help people on opioids get off the opioids and diminish their risk of dying from overdose? So um, uh, I think there's a lot to do, and I believe we're trying to do every single bit of it. And where I live right now in rural Pennsylvania, the rate of death from opiates is four times higher than it is in New York City. We live in a town of 3,800 people, and I'll tell you, once a week, someone dies from an opiate overdose. We don't have that many people. So to me, it's about decreasing supply. You know, We're starting next month all of our scheduled elective surgeries that you're coming to the hospital for. We're using an uh, advanced recovery after surgery protocol, which means Five days before surgery, you start drinking these three special milkshakes a day that have a lot of protein. We get you off smoking. We get you exercising. Actually, two hours before surgery, you take a drink, which is kind of counterintuitive. Many of us were told, you know, don't drink anything after midnight. No, two hours before surgery, we want you in great shape for your surgery. We do 100 procedures now, 100 different procedures that we used to use opiates on, opiate-free. So we actually operate on those people without opiates. We use other types of pain, and then they get the drink after. So all those folks are not getting opiates. Huge, huge difference. We've decreased our opiate prescription uh, from 60,000 prescriptions per month in our system to 31,000, almost a 50% decrease. But your question was about folks that are already having trouble. It's really straightforward. There's a way to treat opiate addiction. It's medication-assisted predominantly along with great uh, appropriate behavioral and supportive therapies. It works. 
like many disorders, it doesn't always work the first time. It takes a few rounds. It's predominantly an outpatient treatment, uh, but can be very effective. The problem is that most of these folks, after treatment, the thing that's still missing is hope. It's, it's a disease really of a broken heart. In our town, where I told you it's four times higher than New York City, and I think our town is typical of rural America, there's not a lot of opportunity. Sure, you can get a job with us, uh, but there's it's towns where families have worked for generations in coal mines, and the coal mine is now closed. So let's not get political. Let's not talk about the environment. But that families needs to be retrained and have new opportunities. Otherwise, there's not that much going on. So I think we need to address the hopelessness for those that actually have succumbed to the disorder. I think treatment can be pretty straightforward. And us in the medical profession, kind of shame on us that we let this happen uh, to start with. High deductible plans were introduced on the belief that if, in quotes, the patient had skin in the game, I'll hit the expression, but that was the one that was used, they would make better decisions. Today, as you know, almost 50% of people have a high deductible plan. And if they actually had to pay the entire cost, they'd have to borrow money to do so. What we know, though, at the same time, is that the typical person, and I think the study was done in Boston, will drive by five lower-priced MRI facilities to go to the one the doctor recommended, despite the fact they're going to pay out of pocket more money. And as you know, MRIs don't vary very much by location. Do we really believe, particularly for the very expensive patients, that the kind of financial incentives we're talking about will make a difference? Yes, but the whole thing's backwards because going to buy uh, a gasoline and saying, wow, that one across the street is cheaper than this one is an easy decision for somebody to make. But when somebody tells me I need an MRI and my doctor says, have the MRI here and they got you scheduled, I'm afraid to question that. That's a hard decision to make. But if that doctor is truly a partner with that patient and their incentives are aligned and they say, you need an MRI and you can go anywhere on the list, or I want you to go to this place or go to that place, people will listen. The docs aren't armed with the right information, but that's a decision that you need a guide with. You can't make that decision on your own. Picking an MRI, which you don't do very often, is not like deciding, wow, this place sells gasoline cheaper than that place. It's, it's a more complicated, it's an emotionally laden decision. You're not going into MRI just to fill up your gas tank. You're going because we're looking at something. Well, do I want to get cheap on that? Now, I could tell you, well, look, they have higher quality and it's $400 and the place you're going is $2,000 and blah, blah, blah. But wait a second, my doctor sent me here. So we can't think that those types of consumer decisions are always applicable in healthcare. But if your doctor actually thought of these things or went through it with you or someone on their team, I think people would make very rational decisions. We just don't give them that information. How would you structure the incentives for the physicians to behave differently? I mean, most physicians, first, have no idea what things cost. And number two, they know what they're used to and comfortable with, even if the data says it doesn't add any value and it's much more expensive. Look at the data that came out of California on total joints ranging from 30000 to 120000 with no difference in outcome when looked in a very uh, risk-based way. How are we going to get aligned the doctors and the patients' incentives? So I, I have incredible respect for you, Robbie, and the work you've done. But I'm going to give an answer that's a little disrespectful. I, I think you're asking the wrong question. A lot of those patients who need hips, we could have avoided with lifestyle issues. A lot of those patients that are getting MRIs, we could have avoided with lifestyle issues. So the more and more, and somebody will figure out the answers to your great questions, but it's the wrong question. The question is how do we decrease the demand, not how do we take a terrible system and make incremental improvements. And the way to decrease the demand will then force that system to get better. And yes, we can use technology to give doctors quality. And yes, we can tell, well, we can tell docs, I would say the best way to answer it is let's bonus docs on decreases BMI. Decrease BMI, by definition, we will end up with less MRIs. And then you know what? I don't care if you go to a $500 one or a $2,000 one because the units 
of service is going to be so much less that we could even afford those inefficiencies. And then if somebody wants to go fix those inefficiencies, I'm not going to stop them. But it's the wrong question. Let's talk about the stuff that matters. The 80% that drives healthcare costs has nothing to do with this MRI versus that MRI. Nothing. It's all we're, we're looking at the wrong problem. We talked about telehealth, but what are some of the other technologies on the horizon in healthcare that consumers can look forward to and that you're personally excited about? So I, I don't even like the term telehealth. I think it should just be called healthcare, that we can do healthcare over the phone, over the computer, over Skype, in person. I mean, it's just another modality to provide healthcare. Um, I think the uh, excitement is going to come uh, in areas that we maybe have not thought of before. And I would talk about things like olfaction, smelling, ability to smell. You can take eight urine cups, put it in front of a dog. The dog can now smell those urine cups and sit down in front of the one that has prostate cancer. And the dog then starts missing a few and they're sitting to not the one that has prostate cancer. We can't figure out what it is. And that patient's urine didn't come from someone with prostate cancer. And now we look more at that patient. and We found out, wow, that dog just found bladder cancer and they haven't been trained on bladder cancer. And they can smell somebody's neck and tell you who has Parkinson's. So I think there's types of diagnostics. And now can we get that olfaction, whatever that is that dog does, because it's better smelling than we have. Can we figure out what it is and get that into our smartphones. So can we use the smartphones or technology to figure out disorders in much non-invasive and much earlier in their course before they show up in other ways? I think we're right on the edge of that. And I think, again, that's not only a disruption, I think it's going to be a lifesaver. Well, David, we have taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, can you please provide a closing statement with takeaways for both the industry leaders and the average healthcare consumer? You may also ask them to follow you on your various social media channels. Yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn. So uh, my, my closing comments would be, um, it's not easy uh, to take good care of you, but the results are not only the absence of disease, but uh, an ability to bring joy back into your life and those that you care about. You know, if you tell people, hey, I got a winning lottery ticket and I'll give it to you, but all you have to do this week is exercise three times and, you know, eat right and do all the right stuff and I'll give you this million dollar lottery ticket, everybody would do it. And then if I said, well, it's actually a hundred million dollar ticket, but you got to do it for a month, most people still would do it. And if I told you it was a billion dollars, but you got to do it for a year, a lot of people would still do all those things. Well, guess what? I can give you that lottery ticket and something that's better. It's your own health. You just got to do it. And if you do it, you're going to get a prize. You're going to get a reward that's better than a billion dollars. We have 2,000 patients in our Geisinger hospitals tonight. And I know many of them would trade a lottery ticket to get out of the hospital. And you can keep yourself out if you do the right stuff. David, thank you so much for being our guest on the show today. I applaud your focus on helping everyone avoid problems in the first place and not simply treating the complications. I think the system of healthcare you're talking about is mission-driven, it's humane, and it really brings health, not disease, to the forefront of the American healthcare endeavor. My sister is the CEO of an organization in New York called God's Love We Deliver, that brings over 3,000 meals every day to people who are homebound. And her expression is, food is medicine. And I think you've emphasized that amazingly well today and something that all the listeners should be recognizing. I can't promise you that your approach and recommendations will be the ones our nation embraces. But for anyone who thought that solutions didn't exist, you have proven them wrong. Dr. Feinberg, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Robert. And Jeremy, I had so much fun too. And I, I don't think we can wait to get these things in place. Next month, our guest will be Dr. Eric Topal, the founder and director of Scripps Translational Science Institute. He also serves as the chief academic officer for Scripps Health, a professor of genomics at the Scripps Research Institute, a senior consultant at the Division of Cardiovascular Diseases at Scripps Clinic, and the author of the best-selling books, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, and The Patient Will See You Now. 
He has been a leading voice for the power of technology to transform American healthcare, improve quality outcomes, and lower costs in innovative and consumer-friendly ways. We are looking forward to having him on the show. To our listeners, please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on iTunes or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate the show five stars and leave a review. Visit our website, www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at FixingHC, that stands for Healthcare Podcast. You can find our personal LinkedIn and Twitter accounts on the website. For additional information on other healthcare topics, you can check out my website, therobertpearlmd.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.